Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Welcome to the Backstory Podcast. I'm your host, Kobe Cole. And on this episode, we have somebody who is not just an artist, but a very super creative and uh, an entrepreneur as well as a producer. And he has sort of seen the whole hip hop uh, genre from the beginning and been able to create a post for himself within the game and continue to grow in the game. And that young man is Kwame. Kobe Cole. What up, man? What's up, man? So in all fairness to people listening, you know, Kwame and myself are around the same age and we yeah. sort of like kind of came up together in the business. So like actually I'm a couple years older than you, but you I remember when you began, I was sort of yeah. in the beginning of my journey in radio and that's how we were able to connect. And then we had a mutual friend in Tap Money who yeah. uh, became your DJ, but was somebody that was close to me um, in that time. So, you know, it's, uh, this conversation will be part friendship because we've kind of seen each other over the course of the years grow in, yeah. the, in the business. But also, you know, it's really an educational piece because I think a lot of people don't understand that there's sort of life after being an artist. And you are a really great example of someone who had a phenomenal career as an artist and still does. You can perform whenever you want to, but you figured out another lane for yourself. And that other lane became more lucrative and, and opportunities that you were given over the course of the years as a creative, I mean, it's got to be, there's a story to tell there, right? That's, that's, that's pretty cool. There's so a million stories to tell, but yeah. we'll condense them. <laughs> we'll compartmentalize them and condense them down into to brief stories. So let's just talk about growing up in, in Queens. And um, this has been a very um, interesting theme of the podcast, right? I, I've been telling this story about the history of hip hop. Yeah. In the history of hip hop, you know, it's this basement party in the Bronx and Cool Herc and whatever and all the stuff that happened in New York and you know, you know, me and you you have your roots there. I have my roots that I have my roots in New York City, so I was able to see it as well in real time when it wasn't what it is now. Yeah. And Queens was the borough that really like skyrocketed hip hop like superstar status. You had the first superstars of rap were Run DMC. You got LL Cool J, uh, yeah. Tribe Called Quest. I was even talking Salt to Irv. Pepper. Yeah, Salt and Pepper. I got uh, Irv Gotti on the podcast a few episodes back just talking about the energy of Queens. So talk about being a kid in Queens in the 80s as hip-hop was being birthed and, you know, what was it that you tapped into to give the world you as an artist? Well, I, I think I credit it to my specific neighborhood. Um, I grew up in an area called East Elmhurst, and it was an adjacent neighborhood called Corona. So we pretty much consider it the same neighborhood, East Elmhurst, Corona. And if anybody knows anything about New York, we are directly in LaGuardia Airport. So LaGuardia Airport, where the Mets play, used to be called Shea Stadium, and where the U.S. Open is, Arthur Ashe Stadium, that's our little neighborhood. And growing up, the neighborhood consisted of upwardly middle-class, upwardly mobile black families. And it was, in my era, the ending of a mixture of black and white and Jewish families in the neighborhood. So the neighborhood has a real rich history. In that neighborhood, after like the Harlem Renaissance and after people were living in a city situation, artists that were making some money started to move out into Queens. And my neighborhood was one of the destinations. So Louis Armstrong lived in the neighborhood. The baseball great Willie Mays lived in the neighborhood. Harry Belafonte lived in the neighborhood. Ella Fitzgerald, Nancy Wilson. A lot of people started migrating into the neighborhood. And even white artists like Martin Scorsese is from the neighborhood. Um, Madonna, when she moved to New York, moved to Corona. So you have all this intermix of talented people generational talented people and then now you get into late 70s early 80s and the birth of hip-hop 
I think what was happening, a lot of the older cats were going into Harlem, going into the Bronx and bringing back, you know, because what we had was either Sugar Hill and Enjoy Records or tapes. And so these tapes are circulating and, and you have crews that were in, in the neighborhood as well. So as a kid, I'm soaking that in. I'm six, seven, eight, nine, ten, soaking what I'm hearing on the radio. The radio definitely played a great part of it. We had great radio DJ Frankie Crocker and Legend. he would play he would play anything. If it was dope, he would play it. So you would hear a John Lennon record, a Madonna record, a Michael Jackson record, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, then Sugar Hill Gang, and then back Toto. to- Toto, he played a Toto record. Yeah, Toto, right? He yeah. played everything. So as a kid, you don't have, you don't know those boxes. You don't know those genre boxes. You just know, is it dope or is it not? You know, mm -hmm. then we had Quiet Storm Time and then we had all the different types of slower music from jazz to, to pop to, to R&B. And that fused into the creative process. And so, so for me, you know, if it was, it was everything. Hip hop was doing everything. You had to do everything as a kid. So you tried your hand at breakdancing. You tried your hand at beatboxing. And if you, you know, I was an artist, so I was graffitiing. I was rapping. And it was just like a gumbo, man. And, and it was a natural gumbo. You didn't think, well, I had to do this. I got to do that. And you didn't think it was ever going to be a career. You know, this is where the the whole, uh, what would you call it, uh, culture thing comes in because you were just doing it because that's what you did. And no adult understood what the hell you were doing. You know, they were right. thinking you would be an alien. Like you walk out with your, your Adidas with the fat laces. We had, we had our own, it was just, it was a great, great, great time. I can't put any other kind of words to it. Yeah. I'll often explain to young people today about that era. It wasn't no money. So it was, we didn't have any money. None of us had money. Like, you know, nope. we aspired to have money, but hip hop was sort of like attainable in a sense, like you first had your Grandmaster Flash and, you know, Planet Rock and African Mabot and all them. But then when the Queens come in, like, you know, Run DMC and LL look like us. This is what we look like. You know, like yeah, I have, yeah, I have pictures. Flash and them are looking like Earth, Wind and Fire. Yeah. Somebody, you know. Yeah. I, I used to call them the um, rapping village people. Cause that's what it was. Exactly. Right. You know, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but then, you know, Run DMC, you know, LL and just a lot of those rappers in that moment were looking like us. And so like, you know, that was what we were like, Oh, okay. You know, I mean, yeah. just, just the gear, all the stuff that we wore and, you know, it kept us out of trouble. Right. So it was yep. sort of like that was our thing. And who knew that we would turn this into something bigger. But let's talk a little bit about you and that transition to becoming an artist. What was that about for you? How did that where did that so, come from? So for me, I was always, always an MC and I was always a DJ just for, as a little kid, you know, wanting to be Melly Mel, you know what I'm saying? And, and doing things like that and not really understanding that there was an art that you can make as a career. There was no understanding of it. And the wild thing was there were other, my grandfather was very good friends with the jazz great Lionel Hampton. Mm -hmm. And so my grandfather would take me to Mr. Hampton's house. And it was very strange for me because I remember going, it was like a, like a George Jefferson type apartment. And <laughs> we would go there and a butler would answer the door. Like I'm talking about full on butler with the tuxedo and everything. And I'm like, yo, the only butler I know is Alfred from Batman. I'm like, right, how does this guy right. have a butler? So as a six, seven-year-old, you're seeing these things, seeing that music can bring about wealth or bring about a different type of lifestyle. But you're still not putting – st it's jazz. And jazz is like – it's more like a, a royalty type of thing. Yeah. So you're not – putting that with Run DMC or anybody like that. You know, you don't equate that. So for me, it was Herbie Lovebug. And Herbie Lovebug lived four blocks from my grandmother, which I stayed at a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And Herbie's little brother, Steve, was a good friend of mine. And we all went to this Catholic school together. Um, Herbie had already graduated. Herbie's about eight years older than us. So Herbie was in a local rap crew called the Turnout Brothers. 
and then you had another auxiliary crew called the Super Lovers, and that and Play from Kid and Play was in Super Lovers, and Kid was in the Turnout Brothers. Eric B from Eric B and Rakim, he was our ice cream man. Wow. Eric B's in the neighborhood. And then there's other people, but you know, these are like the the people that are right in the, the, the immediate area. And so things start to happen. Herbie goes to an audio engineering school and as a project, he has to record a record. He makes showstoppers with salt and pepper. And at the time they were called Supernature. And they were all working at Sears at the time, right? Yeah, they were. Yeah, you know, they were all in Sears in, mm-hmm. a, in an adjacent neighborhood called Flushing. And um, you hear that record on the radio all of a sudden, and it's like, wait, what? And then almost like clockwork, I remember. I remember like it was yesterday. Being in Herbie's, like he had like a sunroom. Like you walk in, and it's like a, like a little den area before you go into the living room. And there was flyers over the stack of flyers, and on the flyers was a picture of Eric B. And he was standing there and he had a bunch of records taped to the wall. And it was just like a random flyer. Eric B is president. New record. And I'm like, wait, who, what? what? And, and they were like, yeah, we used to call him Hook. And like, yo, Hook made a record. So I'm hearing Eric B is president. And I'm like, yo. And then at the same time, Kid and Play get together and they have a group called Fresh Force. And they put out a record called Rock Me. And it was off of that Rock Me Amadeus record. So you're seeing people that you personally know making records. And these weren't, at the time, big hit records. They didn't have major record label situations. Herbie went down to um, Philly and rocked out with a a company called Pop Art, Lawrence Goodman. But the Showstoppers was an answer to the show. To the show. Right. And I don't remember what label Fresh Force was on. And Eric B. and Rakim... They it were on Zakia, um, right? Zakia. Yeah, Zakia Records. It was this orange label with just yeah. black writing. Mm-hmm. And these were the records that we had from people in our neighborhood. And then right after that, right across on the other side of the neighborhood is Cool G Rap. And then Cool G Rap comes out with It's a Demo. Massive. So these are people, like literally, I found I sound like the Sesame Street record, who are the people in your neighborhood? These are the literally the older guys that I, I see firsthand. And... We had this roller skating rink called United Skates of America. And this is when it started to hit me. I go to United Skates and every Sunday was like hip hop night and everybody performed there. Like from New Edition to Madonna when she first came out, everybody performed at United Skates. So we go and the first night is Eric B and Rakim. Nobody knew what Rakim looked like. The neighborhood knew Eric B. They're performing my melody. They're performing um, Eric Beer's presence. They're only two songs they have. Nobody believed that Rakim was really Rakim because he didn't necessarily sound exactly like the record. So they were kind of booing him. Right. <laughs> you know, it was weird. And then the next week after that, Fresh Force performs. And you're like, what is happening? You know, all the neighborhood turns out for that. Then the week after that, Coogee Rap performs. And... Girls that I knew that I would probably never give him any play, or he was too old for the girls, technically, just hearing them in the background, like, oh, I'm going to give him some. I'm gonna, I'm like, off of the record? And G-Rap comes out, he's throwing dollar bills into the crowd and roses on when he does I'm Fly. And I'm like, yo. And then, so all these, all these stimuli is hitting me at one time, within a year. And also... The thing that brought it home, I was a huge Dougie Fresh and Slick Rick fan, and I super admired what Herbie was doing just in a producer aspect and not really knowing what a a hip-hop producer was. Mm -hmm. And Herbie Herbie went from driving an orange 1979 Datsun. Wow, this is before Nissan, people. So just so you know, that's what Datsun was before Nissan. Orange 1979 Datsun with Mm -hmm. a hole in the floor. You can see the street when you're driving. Yeah. Part of the bumper was held together by silver duct tape. And he would be taking salt and pepper to like different clubs like Union Square, Red Parrot, Latin Cause. I was too young to go, wow. but I would always hear yeah. the stories when they came back. Yeah. And then one day Herbie disappeared. They just disappeared for the summer. And during that summer also, I went to um see Dougie Fresh and Slick Rick perform at City College in Harlem. And the show was super popping still. And Doug and Rick came out and the girls went crazy, like absolutely crazy over over Rick. 
And I was like, man, this, I got to do this. This is something I have to do. And then by the time the summer ended, I'm starting high school. No, 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 I'm starting eighth grade, I think. And then Herbie comes home and there's no more Datsun. He has a candy apple red 190E Mercedes Benz. Wow. A full gold grill, all these fat ropes. And I was like, Herb, what the hell happened? What did you do? And he was like, man, I'm a producer. And from that moment, that was the click. It just super clicked in because I'm now fully dialed in as being a rapper. I'm fully dialed in as being my own type of musician. And the the people that I really looked up to were like Prince and Stevie Wonder. So I'm seeing written, produced, arranged by you know them on their records. And I'm adding that to what Herbie said, I'm a producer. That's when it just went and I was ready to go. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So then you started to to make your own music, but you wanted to make it and rap on it. So talk a little bit about that process. Yeah, the way I made music, it was weird because I didn't have any equipment like that. I had a piano, I had drums, I had a trumpet. And how I would do it was I would take two two, um, uh, tape recorders, tape me playing the drums, and then take the other tape recorder as the drums are being played back, playing whatever I wanted to play on the piano, now I got two tracks. Play that back, play a little trumpet line or whatever. I was the worst at the trumpet. I don't think I'm nice. I'm not. <laughs> but, you know, I got done whatever I wanted to get done. So now I had three tracks. And then I rapped for my fourth track. And that's how I was starting to make my songs. But I never played them for anybody. And then as the 80s started to progress and people were getting drum machines and stuff like that, I remember I had this one friend, this bad kid, he stole the drum machine. Stole the drum machine, brought it to my house. He said, I'll give you, give you the weekend. Learn how to make beats on that. It was called a Dr. Rhythm. Yep. And, and I made beats on a Dr. Rhythm, and then I started doing that. And then my, my parents, and this is very important, parental support is probably the most important thing, is the most important thing to a child. Whether Even if the parent doesn't even understand what you're doing, the support. So my father and mother supported my music so much that they were the ones, well, Lionel Hampton got me the drums, which was a dope present, but they were the ones that put me into piano lessons and trumpet lessons. And then when my father saw me getting into hip hop, he was able to get me a set of turntables and a mixer. And then, you know, they talked to my grandparents. My grandparents bought me a Casio CZ 101, and that was a Casio that can sample. And so now I'm learning how to sample. And I'm just, with the support of family, it's now starting to elevate. And I'm starting to make these demos. And they all suck. And I I was giving them, like, I would give them to Herbie. He was like, man, this ain't it. And I just kept pushing, kept, kept doing it that way until I found studio time. And then I elevated into going into studios. So let's talk about your first single. I always loved the album cover, by the way, because you were Kwame a boy... A boy genius or the boy genius? The boy genius. The boy genius. And you have all this equipment you're talking about sort of around you. Talk about your first single because that was our real introduction. I believe you were maybe 16 or 17 when that first yeah, came out. Yeah, I was 16 out. when I recorded it, 16 going on 17 when it dropped. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first single was The Man We All Know and Love. And it was weird because making that first album, at first I waited for Herbie to be my quote unquote producer. Even though that album was done in demo form, I thought Herbie was gonna come in and give me like, I don't know, Ola A or, or right. everybody get up, you know, some some kind of record like that. But Herbie was busy. Herbie was busy with Dana Dane, Salt and Pepper, Sweet Tea, Kid and Play. So me recording that album or re-recording that album professionally, I was just dropping records off of things that were in my rhyme book, stories and and freestyles and all this kind of stuff. But I never had the in my mind what was going to be a single. 
and what was and I didn't understand the science of a radio record and a single and a records that that carry the masses because I've only been in for the most part in Queens or maybe down south you know I don't I don't have that knowledge so when it was collectively decided that the man we all know and love a five minute long parody of like Dana Dane or Slick Rick was going to be a single. I kind of was like, well, all right, that's cool, but you know, this is this is like a goofing off record. This right. ain't even really novelty. Yeah, I was really yeah. like, my thing was spitting. I wasn't right. really into the. I love telling stories, but that particular record was to joke around. Was just showing my jokey side. And I was like, no, this is the one. This is the one. And I was like, well, I think it should be the rhythm. And they're like, nah, nah, this is the one. And I'm like, all right, whatever. So we put the single out, and I still really didn't have too much knowledge of the effect of the record we shot the video and i thought it was dope that the people that was down with me like salt and pepper and dana dane came in and was a and kid and play was a part of the video that was huge for you that was huge but you know i'm not because these are people that i'm around all the time right i don't see it that way i'm just seeing like my all my friends are coming Mm -hmm. and then malcolm jamal warner shows up at the video and um he gets in it I never met him before a day in my life, and I was like, "Oh, all right, this is kind of crazy." But he was in New York. He, be, yeah, he uh, was a he was doing the Cosby Show yeah, in New he York. Was, it was a full on Cosby Show hype yep. of and, the show, and he was a huge hip hop fan because he started directing videos. He did special eds, yeah. uh, a couple yeah. special eds videos. So yeah, no, that yeah, was that's, that's cool. why he came because Paris Barclay, who directed that, a legend. Video, yeah. Yes, super legend Paris Barclay. He was teaching Malcolm how to direct. So Malcolm came through and he was like, Hey, I'll get in the video. And then, you know, um Spinderella was my girlfriend in the video. I'm like, yo, I wanted her to be my girlfriend in real life. Like, it's poppy. And and so I didn't still didn't see the effect, but the effect came in Philly of, of all places. We performed at a place called After Midnight. Yeah. And it was a 21 and over, over crowd. And I was opening up for Cool G Rap, which was cool because it was somebody I, I knew and there was a familiarity there. And he was like hyping me up backstage. Like, come on, you can do it. Uh. And, you know, this is my first real show. Cool G Rap, Queen Latifah. And I, no, it was Cool G Rap and Queen Latifah. And we get on first and the audience looks at me like I'm an alien. <laughs> they don't make no noise. I'm up there dancing, and my DJ at the time was a guy named B Flat, and I introduced everybody. This is, you know, all my group members had like musical note names. So this is A sharp, this is C major, this is my DJ B Flat, and somebody yelled in the back, B got a flat head. I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> and it was just like it wasn't a dope show. But the next day, there's a mall in Philly. For those who not, don't know Philly, there's a mall called Sheltonham Mall. Yeah, in the hood. Next day we had to do what, like an in-store. We go to the record store and we we sign albums. And we had to go to Sheltonham Mall to do this in-store. And I was bummed out from the night before. And I thought nobody was going to show up. And I thought I was just doing hard labor at this point. Then I get there and there's kids wrapped around the block. The mall is packed. And I'm like, wait, what? And these kids are going nuts, man. To this second, I don't couldn't believe it. So basically, we were resonating with the 18 and under, not the 21 and over. So I'm tripping, and we're signing autographs, and I'm like on a, a high. And then from there, we go to Harrisburg, where I open up for Sweet Tea. And I don't remember the place. It was like a theater in Harrisburg. And I get on stage, and when I tell you 80% of the guys had on polka dot shirts, 90% of the girls had on polka dot outfits. Most of the guys had streaks in their hair. And I walk on the stage, I look around. Can you curse on this show? Yes. Oh, I walk around and I was like, okay, y'all fucking with me. And I walked off the stage. I thought Herbie set up a joke. <laughs> not in Harrisburg. He's not gonna set up a joke I'm in like, Harrisburg. Yo, I and I was I was pissed. Right. I was backstage like, come on, y'all playing around, man. This is my second show. Y'all gotta play games like that. Because Herbie, like our crew played elaborate practical jokes. Right, right. So I'm thinking he paid some kids off. Then <laughs> he went to the Gap and bought a bunch of shirts. I was like, nah, man, I'm not going on that stage. And I remember Sweet T was like, nah, they're here for you. They're not even here for me. They're here for you. I'm like, come on, man. And he was like, nah, seriously. And I got out, got on that stage, and we we rocked. And from city to city to city outside of Pennsylvania, I think the next place we went was like Chicago, then, then Ohio, and then we went to Detroit. 
it was the same thing just off of that first single. So, you know, that still bugs me out. But yeah, yeah, that's how it went down. So then you basically at the time, there wasn't a lot of like teen rap stars. It was really the rappers were kind of like young adult men, you know, that's who the rappers were. So you kind of talked to teenage girls and you made songs that kind of talked about things that young people could relate to. And then you got your second single, which was the rhythm, which was the rapping record that you wanted. What was that like for you, though, just kind of not even finishing high school and you spent that summer just kind of going all over the country? That must have been mind blowing for you. Just, you know, all of a sudden from Queens, this one neighborhood having this dream and all of a sudden you're in all these cities. What did that feel like? Oddly to say it felt natural. I'm a very strong believer in in visualizing and believing things can happen before they actually happen and visualizing things to like, I was the king of daydreaming in in school. I would get in trouble for it all the time, but it was mainly visualizing and manifesting, not to sound all kooky or whatever. Right. But if you believe something so much and you research something so much to your core, when it happens, when you see it, it feels like it's a memory. It feels like this was something that you already know, or you were supposed to know. And that's how being on stage and doing all that felt to me. But then there was a a flip side of it as well. And the flip side was being of school age. And so during that time, I remember getting ready to go on tour and the album album didn't really come out yet. So I had these proofs, it was like a roll up piece of paper and it was like the proof of the album cover. And then there's another roll up paper and it was a proof of the CD and the cassette and like a vinyl, a white label vinyl. And I remember bringing it to school, showing all my friends, like, I'm coming out with an album. And I remember I had a, an appointment with my principal, and who I don't even remember the name anymore, but there was a work study program in my school, but it was like set up for like bad kids or pregnant teens or, or kids in situations where they have to work. Mm-hmm. So they would set them up with this program where they can, come to school for a limited amount of time and then take do like homeschooling. So I wanted to do the same thing. And I was sat with my principal and I showed him all of this stuff. And the principal said to me, well, since you're going to be a big music star, you might as well just drop out. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> you're telling me to drop out of school? Yeah, that's crazy. He's like, yeah, you're going to make all this money. You just drop out. And I remember telling my mom that and my mother flipped. Oh man, I can she imagine. She came to school, flipped on the principal and took me out of the school and put me in and this is where lack of knowledge came in. Me and Spinderella were around the same age. So we were both in this program. And in, in New York, it's called a 600 school. And the 600 school is a school for the bad kids or the kids on the work program or the pregnant mom, teens and everything. They put us in that school. And we both went to the same school, school in Bushwick, Brooklyn, when Bushwick was wow. the absolute worst. <laughs> Mind you, just in the city, there's a school for professional children. And we could have just went there. You know, all the kids like Malcolm Jamal Warren, all these kids were going to the professional children's school. Right. But no one had the mind to say, let's look this school up. They threw us in the bad kids school. So the surreal thing for me was going to school with a bodyguard, like a full on diesel dude. I'm not the tallest guy in the room. So when this guy's like your height, Kobe, and five times bigger than you, and like just big dude, man, this dude's huge. His name was Heavy. And I would have to walk through the halls with this big old security man looking crazy, literally becoming a target for the most part. Right. And they wouldn't let me sit in the class with the kids. So I had to sit in these like this closet and your song was out at the time too, right? Yeah, everything was, it was All right, So they knew, the kids knew who you were. Yeah, so it was crazy <clears throat> coming to school, crazy leaving school, crazy in the hallways, and I had to be escorted to this closet. And I would get my assignments, they would let me leave before the other kids would leave. There was kids waiting for me outside the school. But it was because of my nature, anybody knows me, I'm not, like I don't have any kind of air about me. So I got cool with anybody who I shouldn't have been cool with. Right. So. I never had issues, safety issues, but still it was, it was kind of, it was a very surreal situation. And I kind of wish 
we researched <laughs> this professional children's school because that was not the move. So then you had your first album, which was, you know, a relative success for an, a new artist. And then you, yeah. you come to your second album, which was highly anticipated, and you release only you. Well, let me tell you something about the first album. The, mm-hmm. the first album success, this is the weirdest thing about the first album success. We would get audits. We would see like, because this is now... This is right before SoundScan. Right. So we would get the printouts of how many records were sold. And right before the album cycle was over, I remember getting a printout and it said album sales 400,994.32 albums sold. 500,000 gets you a gold album. Right. So I'm like, wait, we're at 494 and you mean to tell me we can't go to five? Right. I just need 6,000. We can't go to 525. Yeah. How much does it cost? I'll buy right. six. Right. Like, we can't do that. And then it was like, and this was at the time where the African bootleggers were on 125th Street. <laughs> so your album could have been gold just off the street. And I'm like, there's no way. Everybody has this album. There's no way this album's not gold. Hey, it, it, it stopped at 494. Like, that's ridiculous and then shoot now we're at 32 years later where it's been streaming it's still i still get receipts from the album and everything you mean to tell me we didn't push those six thousand are you still not gold i have not seen and i'm like and 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 we go into that's another thing like i remember sitting down like with the president of atlantic just as a producer i'm like look man i need my gold plaque man y'all killing me i got all these gold and platinum plaques for other things can i please just get my gold boy genius plaque already like come on so go on to the next album only you only you was a very interesting story only you was originally written for vanessa williams i wanted to produce and write for my my old lady crush (laughs) vanessa williams and um there was supposedly a slot on the album to have some more like hip-hop type things and i wanted to put myself on the record as a featured artist so i did this song and and the funny thing is a lot of people don't know tashina arnold's little sister zanae was a very good friend of mine in high school and she sang all the only you parts and so it was me zanae and i submitted it to um to mercury right yep i submitted it and they rejected the record and at the same time i was starting a girl group and I forgot the name of the girl group. But one of the girls, Angela, Angela Hunt, who wrote Empire State of Mind for Jay-Z, she was in the group. And Tasha Lambert was also it was like a two-girl group. I was going to have like the first version of Change Your Faces. And so I put Tasha on Only You and made it a record for myself. Right. And the only reason why I made it a record, and you, you would know this, because radio had this thing called the No Rap Workday. From 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., no rap records. And I was like, nah, man, I want to hear my record at six o'clock in the morning. And the only way to hear my record at six o'clock in the morning, I want to disguise it as an R&B record. And I talked to Sylvia Rohn and Atlantic because Atlantic was going through this thing where they were trying to separate all rap from R&B. So they had this label called Atlantic Street. And when they put out Atlantic Street and had this logo with some African dude (laughs) dancing, I'm like, what is this bullshit? (laughs) And they put out this Atlantic Street. That meant... To radio programmers, this is that hip hop. This ain't right. This ain't Levert. This isn't. I don't know who else was on it at the time. Vanessa Williams. This is none of that stuff. Yeah. 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 So when you see the black man yeah. dancing on the on the logo, you know to play that. They had um, Craig G was one of those artists. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I Light. remember that. Yep. Doc. Yeah. And so I was like, "Yo, don't put Atlantic Street on my record." And it was a big fight. Do not put that dancing man on my record right service the record like an r&b record do me that favor since you can't do me the six thousand records that y'all owe me do me that favor so they serviced it like that and it was literally a show social experiment to get radio to play a rap record at six o'clock in the morning that's all my my priorities were all off man i just wanted a six o'clock in the morning record well and then you and then the record becomes such a massive record in a in a timeless record did you have any idea that it was going to be one of those songs that when you're like 85 you could probably perform it (laughs) absolutely not you know one of the things that one of the um the indicators it was weird let me go back to philly actually will smith and charlie mack called me from africa they were in morocco or something and it was like listen in the background 
and they were playing only you. Wow. It's like, yo, we in Africa. I'm like, wait, what? You know, and then I would get like, the first album, I was starting to get some international like letters and, you know, that's when people were sending in fan mail. But like when only you hit and that second album hit, it was coming from all over. And, you know, we were asked to do Arsenio Hall and we were asked to do Soul Train and, and other shows like Party Machine and all these shows that were that was on. Even got asked to do American Bandstand. We never did it. I don't know what happened, but we were definitely asked to do that as well. And I couldn't believe it. I didn't understand that I had a crossover record, especially because in my in my mind, it was an experiment. And, and things that people need to understand about me, I'm extremely introverted. Almost to a, a default. Most so, most creatives are though, but that's that's common. Yeah, and so for me, when I make songs, when I write songs, it's in a a lonely, not lonely as in sad lonely, but in a lonely place. It's usually I have a studio in my house, um, or uh, I go to a studio that's not occupied frequently, and I create these records, and I then I hand them off. So. My business mind, my single making mind, my that type of mind, I didn't really have. And so seeing success of records and hearing like walking down the street and hearing somebody drive by and playing the rhythm, my first reaction is always, where to get that? <laughs> where to get that from? Right. You know, and it's right. like that to this day. Mm-hmm. And so even with only you and and performing only you and and doing things, it's always a weird hesitation. Like I could be somewhere, I could be at any kind of concert and somebody goes, hey, why don't you perform only you? I'm like, they're not going to know that song. What are you talking about? And it's never the case. But for me, in my mind, I've never, it's never clicked in that a record like that became that timeless type of record. So what what did that record do? Did that record go gold at least? Yeah. Okay, good. That That was your your first gold record? But see, I I don't know, man. Because the powers that be that were at Atlantic aren't there anymore. I could just go all in on them. It was just real funky, man. It was just like the same thing happened with the second album. We get to almost gold. Like, I might as well have an almost gold plaque, like <laughs> a dusty metal <laughs> record. Right, it's right. kind of shiny. Right. Like, how are we getting to these 400,000 parts? And then they tried to pull that with Only You, honestly. They were saying that Only You wasn't a radio record. Um, I remember promotions coming back. Um, saying that it wasn't a radio record. It was what was considered, um, what was the term for it back in the day? It's a turntable record. Turntable hit. Meaning that it does well when people play it, but it doesn't, quote unquote, research well. And they don't Um, necessarily buy it. They just like to hear it when they hear it. Yeah, yeah. They don't buy it. They they just like to hear it. Mm -hmm. They may not even know who the artist is. They just, that's my jam. And they just rock to it. and, And I could understand that. And sometimes I can always, I can even accept that. I'm not saying my name at all in the record. Like, you know, you might not know who the hell sings that song. But for me, it was a weird vibe because it was everywhere. Because I was going everywhere. And it wasn't like a New York. Matter of fact, the only place that wasn't really playing it was New York. Yeah, that's true. New York was like, this is not a New York record. But let me go to any club in New York. Go to the tunnel in 1990. That record was cracking. So it was it was it was a very weird time for me because it's like how do I see all of this but y'all don't see none of that you know it's like right and for a, a pretty much a kid that doesn't really have an understanding of the business and how things work it becomes a very confusing time it felt like living like having a glass wall in front of you being hungry and somebody putting a whole steak dinner on the other side of the glass wall saying that that's your dinner. But there's no doors or anything to get to the dinner. Right. And you're telling people, you know, I got a steak dinner. And they're like, yeah, well, that's a turntable steak. (laughs) (laughs) People just want to look at it. They don't want to eat it. I'm like, the hell? Right. So. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Do you remember what the first check was that you ever got? Yeah, my first check was $11,000. $11,200. At 17 years old? 
Yeah, that was an advance. Mm-hmm. And what did you do? Put aluminum siding on the side of my mother's house. <laughs> I put. What a good boy! You were such a good boy. You think I wanted to do that? <laughs> I put aluminum siding. I got a Volkswagen Cabriolet. I remember. I remember that car. And uh, all white. And it's not about what I did with the first thing. It was the second thing I did because the white Cabriolet, I bought that. And I think I bought a $1,500 fat rope that I never told my mother I bought. I had to have a fat rope. Of course. And I never wore it. I wore it like... I wore it tucked in my shirt on my first album cover, and then I think I sold it to somebody because I didn't want my mother to know I had a fat rope. Um, yeah, but I didn't do anything. Like I had friends. Like one of my best friends was the redhead kingpin, and he bought like with his advance, he bought like a, a M3 convertible, and then my other friends were three times doping. Chuck Nice had uh, another a uh, black on black M3, and everybody was getting all these fly, and I was just like, man. I got to get the Volkswagen, you know, my mother. And that was just parental, parental advisory. Man. Well, and responsibility just, too. Yeah. Yeah. They yeah. were, they were on it. My mother, my father, I had a godfather that was somewhat in the business and everybody was on my neck, man. Like, and I think like I chopped that 11,000 up, you know, in 1989, 11,000 is like 20,000. Oh, it's so, more than that now. Yeah. It would, that's yeah. probably like 40, 50,000. And I bought, I bought equipment. The greatest thing I ever bought was a four track. And my MPC 60. And that's how my second album got made. Mm -hmm. I bought a full equipment and I set it up in my bedroom and I made my second album. So you got the the advance on the second album. You were basically paying yourself to make your album. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. My advances, I never tricked out my money. I bought a lot of clothes. But all my money went to, and it's weird, it still does, goes into funding what I do and how I do it. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and nobody really, really talked to me about that. Like I bought, I remember spending advance on nothing but merch. So I bought tons of shirts and hoodies and caps with embroidered. And okay, we're gonna sell this merch and more equipment. It was always, it was always equipment first though. And the stupidest thing I did with money was I had the Volkswagen Cabriolet. And after shooting the Only You video, I was dating a girl in this in Washington Heights, upper. Harlem at the time. Yep. And I remember other side of town. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember driving the the video only you was shot down on 14th Street at a um in a high school and driving uptown with the girl and I had all the uniforms, everything we wore in only you and everything we wore on the road was in the trunk of the car and they were going to go get cleaned or whatever and I went to the girl's house and I spent the night which I was not supposed to do by the way. I told my mother I was I don't know what I told her, but I was not supposed to be doing that. Mm-hmm. And spent the night at the girl's house and I came back outside and the car was gone. And so like a rapper, I immediately, I don't even know what I did, but I immediately went to Volkswagen and bought another identical cabriolet. I remember that like a rapper because your insurance, you didn't have your insurance or something wasn't paid. Or... I, I, I didn't have a license. Right. And I did not have insurance. I was a rapper <laughs> in New York City. Rappers still don't learn. Yeah. And I remember within that month, driving the new Cabriolet, going back to the girl's house and pulling up to the light and here goes the old Cabriolet at the light. Wow. So I'm like, uh, what? And I remember having a high speed chase through Washington Heights. Like I was going to get my, like, what was I going to do once I got the car? I'm going to drive five, five feet and get in the car and drive. Right, right, right. Like, and... That was probably the dumbest, the dumbest rapper move I've ever made. And I never made a dumb rapper move after that. Wow. So you continue to have a career, but then you start to transition into more of a producing or of a producer. Cause you kind of already was kind of doing stuff well, for yeah, people. I was producing all my records right. and I was, you know, low key trying to produce other people. Yep. Um, continue to have a career. I think is you put it lightly because I, I don't think I did. I think two things happened. Music changed. And sometimes you get so much in your own head that you don't, you think things can revolve around you and you, you're, and not understand the music is way bigger than you. Yeah. So as hip hop continued, you know, I'm trying to push a certain musical narrative. I'm trying to honestly push the envelope of hip hop and try to be more than what I saw hip hop to be. Right. But hip hop, 
and don't take this as a negative, but hip hop kind of regressed into the bare bones of hip hop. Drums, bassline, lyrics. And then that's where you start having your Tribe Called Quests and your more grittier sound. And then you start having your West Coast come in and their fundamental sounds. And here I am over here trying to orchestrate and do right. hundred tracks and interludes and, and, and concept albums. And that's not, that just wasn't hip hop. And so because of that, everything pretty much came to a halt. I didn't have a career at all. I was now I'm I'm benched. I'm I'm on the sidelines. And um and then it didn't make it any better. You got, you know, a, a artist like Biggie coming out and then saying something about you putting five more nails in whatever the co- proverbial coffin could have possibly been and it just pushes you back. You know, just as a creative, it it pushes you into a whole nother perspective and I had to figure it out to be honest with you. And what he's referring to is just, you know, Biggie was new on the scene and he had a song called Unbelievable, which was yeah. a great premiere produced track. And he kind of took a shot at you and the polka dots. And yeah, that, you know, I don't even think, you know, honestly, I never thought of it as a shot. That's the funny thing. Mm-hmm. It's just like a line. He was doing that throughout right. the whole album, right? you know, but I think the audience, it summed up the end of one type of generation. Yeah and the beginning of another kind of generation. Because there was a lot of people from my generation that were considered great yep. that didn't continue. You know, you can go, we can go from Slick Rick to Big Daddy Kane to, you know, there was- Cool so G Rap, all those people you talked about, yeah. All, all the yeah. people that were my heroes, and it's not a fault of their own, music changed and then ushered in a new guard. Run yeah. DMC, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Um, all these people that, Melly Mel, everybody, so yeah run dmc technically had a very small window of success and then they went through a period of uh, weirdness and then pete rock 10 years after their debut album pete rock helps them with uh down with the king yep and then they kind of disappeared again it was was tough yeah yeah but but if you really you know you kind of think about it hindsight you look back on the trajectory of rap and artists the one thing that i never really liked about hip-hop was hip-hop treats as artists like high school yeah you're good for about four albums, four years of high school, four albums, and then it's on to whoever yeah. comes in. And then it's mean. Where, it's very mean. Yeah, it, it, it's like inherently mean. Like and cruel. Nobody, yeah. Nobody says anything about it. It just happens. Yeah. Where people talk about the Beatles to this day, like if they just yeah. came out, Bruce you know, Springsteen, or, or yeah. Bruce Springsteen, or anybody, you're, yeah. you're you're now considered. You know, they they don't even call themselves old school. They call themselves legacy artists. Yeah. And, and you know they're they're held to a certain esteem. But even and, just recently, Twenty One Savage said Nas was just not you know his music wasn't relatable. But in a way, the way he said it, it was like really. Dude? Yeah, people like, went people went overboard with that yeah. though. Like I know what he was trying to say, yeah. and I think it was just people him not articulating what he was really trying to say he wasn't trying to like super stab Nas or anything like that. Yeah, but Quam, these do. I mean, I still work with all of these yeah. artists, they really genuinely think that they're greater than that generation. Now it could be right. There could be in, it could be to the global uh, people that listen to hip hop that they are greater. But if you're a real true fan of hip hop, you can go back to the nineties, which is the Renaissance period for hip hop and listen to all of that music. And you can't tell me that anybody coming out today maybe with the exception of Kendrick, maybe J. Cole, but not really have them. They still they don't really have the songs that these people had in that era. Think about this. Michael Jackson, Prince, Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder would never, in his wildest imagination, ever fix his face to say, I am greater than Ray Charles. That's true. He would never. He would always show respect. Prince would never say, I am greater yeah. than Little Richard. Yeah. Michael would never say I'm greater than Sam Cooke. He would, they would never say it. They may say, well, I've made a lot of money and they weren't awarded the opportunities that I have, but I would never think that I was more relevant or greater than these people. But also the other thing about it too, and we can move past this because it is, it's a, this is a whole nother podcast episode Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. because I have the, I have these conversations with artists all the time and, and label people or younger people that have a certain arrogance about, and I, and I would say I probably had an arrogance too. And, and we had an arrogance yeah, yeah. for IRA, right? But those artists and you and all those other artists, if you go back, really made the 
machine that now makes these kids like super wealthy without even having to put an ounce of work in that you all had to put in to even just get on the scene. It's a much yeah. different game now because of the machine that you all helped build. And that's the part that I, sometimes I try to talk with people like you don't understand this machine and what it was like, yeah, you didn't have 24 hour radio stations. You didn't have streaming. You didn't have a YouTube, all these outlets to expose yourself. You had to literally get on the radio. And if you could not get on the radio, you, you was good luck. Right. And every, everybody can get on the radio. Kobe, you know, this. any rapper that got on the radio and I tweeted this the other day, any rapper who got on the radio was asked to rap. Any straight up got on the radio was asked to sing straight up. Yep. Sing something. Yeah. Rap something. You yep. had to edit yourself, spit some bars, put on a beat. Cosmic Kev, put on a beat. You right. Know what I'm right. And you rap or you sang. You would have to do drops. When you would do the drop, the singer would sing. It's radioactive. Kobe, Kobe. You know, they would sing whatever right. they sang. Right. You had I to work. I not believe that anybody is tested in their field of art. Unless it's like, you know, something where you see like a controlled environment and a rapper is supposedly rapping on a podcast or whatever. And if you really think about like you take some of like the newer rappers and I'm not putting anybody in a negative box. So I right. don't want anybody to think this, but let's say let's take ice spice, for example, and you take that record much, drill, drill rapper out of, out yeah. of the Bronx. Go ahead. She could never say those rhymes live because they're all punched. Boop, boop, boop. They're all like, plugged in some of them are overlapping tell so everybody like, what the punch is tell them what that is now a punch is like when somebody's recording and they'll say three lines of a song and then stop and then you play the thing back and then when you get to that third line they call it punching and they start to record again and you say three more lines then they stop and you say three more lines yep. so a lot of the newer rappers you hear that they're either reading from something or making up three lines at a time, punching in, punching in, punching in. And then when you hear a record, then this is like a professional ear listening. A kid's not going to know this. But I was having a discussion with some friends, and I'm like, yo, half of these new guys, I want to know how they could possibly say these rhymes. And they don't. They get on stage, and the crowd sings it for them. They'll say some of the words, and they'll put the mic back out. But there's never a test of skill set anymore. And so when you have situations like that, I can't understand how someone could think that they are greater than in the talent level. Okay, yes, you've made more money than a generation before you, but our parents made more money than our grandparents. Would our parents ever say that we're they're greater than our <laughs> grandparents? Right. Would our, would our parents ever say that they're greater than our great-grandparents? Yeah. It was just a little bit, it's just a different, it's a level of respect. And, you know, it's just a different, it's a different era. And again, we could talk about this forever. But, and I'm not trying to be like the grumpy old. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's grumpy it's, old rapper. <laughs> listen, I embrace the fact, and I appreciate the fact that I have this history in my brain of things that I saw with my eyes and things that yeah. I heard with my ears, and I appreciate that. It really just grounds me in a in a way. And yep. again, I've been around a long time. You've been around a long time. I can show you thousands upon thousands upon thousands of artists that have come and gone. Many who just had their moment, especially in hip hop, it could be very quick. It's like hip hop is like a professional athlete. You really have yeah. a little bit of a window. That's why you got to get it when you can get it. So I totally understand and respect that. But it's also, you know, an education process and learning about the business and not being so arrogant that you just don't want to learn. And then you just run through with all this arrogance. And unfortunately, I see a lot of artists that do that. And then they're on the back end when it all falls apart, trying to figure it out. And all of that arrogance is, you know, created this, you know, this block for them that they can't get past, you know, yep. just the way the universe works. But McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You started producing... Um, for a lot of different people. So then you transition, you know, you talked about just how your career just stalled for a second, but you had all that equipment, which you invested in yourself the and you started producing. Ever done. Yeah. And so you produce for LL, you produce for, you worked with Eminem on, on, um, 
Lloyd Banks. Lloyd Banks' first single. Uh, you work with Will Smith, Mary J. Blige, um, and then you do a lot of movie st- stuff, the music you hear behind the scenes and television and movies. So yep. talk a little bit about just transitioning into that space because you also now you live on the West Coast, so you're not even an East Coaster anymore. You moved to where all of the cre- – Don't. Oh. I'm always an East Coaster. But all the creatives oh. have moved to the West Coast. Like all of the big creatives of the 90s, many of them – in hip hop, have moved to the West Coast. I get it. I mean, I you know understand what? But it. I, before I go back into the production thing, but I did not move to the West Coast for artistic reasons. Mm-hmm. For me, my life and my family life was based in and around Queens, New York, or the New York City area, or a very short travel distance down south. So, and this is not a sad story. Um, my grandparents were married for 75 years. They lived together. They lived in the house in Queens since 1953. This home was like the home base for the whole side, my father's side of the family. Christmas, Easter, weddings, funerals, whatever. Everybody was at my grandparents' house. Uh, My father moved on a farm in Virginia. My mother, they broke up. My mother moved to South Carolina, but still very close to get to. Mm -hmm. So in 2017, my grandmother passes away, not of any illness. She was 93 years old. So she passes away in 2017. One month later, my grandfather passes away. Oh, wow. So now the house is almost is vacant. Six months later, my father passes away. So the, 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 the magnet that kept me in the East Coast was pretty much gone within six months. And I just basically said, Try something new. Wow. You know, I go to L.A. all the time. Try something new. Every, and I always sit at home saying, Dag, I need to get to L.A. You know, go to the West Coast, see how it is, try it out. But it's for your peace of mind and just to re-energize and recoup due to all of this loss at such a short time. It's literally the anchors of a whole side of a family leaving in a six-month time period. Mm-hmm. So... And then, you know, my grandparents' home got sold. Everything was gone. So there's no ties. Why not Why not expand and, and, and go somewhere else? I don't know if, you know, if I stay here, I, if I, you know, I don't know. But that was the reasoning behind that. But back to your original question about producing, yeah, I think producing for me, I never wanted to be a genre producer. I never wanted to be a hip-hop producer. never wanted to be an R&B producer. I never wanted to be a pop producer. I just wanted to be a well-rounded producer. I look at people like a Quincy Jones. I look at people like Rick Rubin and and, and producers of that caliber mm-hmm. where they touch on things that you wouldn't think they, they were able to touch on. And or you wouldn't just you would just wouldn't think of it at all. And I don't think that's relegated to to age. Okay. You know, a great producer is not relegated to age if you if you use it in the whole sense of the word of of being a producer. So I've been trying, you know, my thing is I love working with other artists. I love interacting with other artists. It's weird. Like if you do, if you do like a chart and you put me in the middle and you put all the different artists that I've personally worked with, you would never expect this one to be connected to that one, to be connected to that one. And that to me is, I love that. I 100% love that because um, it broadens my creative scope and it makes this game, which can be rough and, and tumultuous at times, very interesting. And I think that's, and I, I just, that's why I do it to this day. I just love doing it. Well, Quam, listen, you know, you're somebody I've known in this business and we've kind of grew up in this business together. So it's always a pleasure to, to talk to you. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just excited that, about your creativity. Like you've one of the most creative people I know, but you always just got an idea. And if you look at his background, the background is you, man. It's like, you just super creative. You're <laughs> always connected to something. You always got an idea and you kind of run on it and, and make it happen. And, you know, listen, a lot of stuff we are hearing from you. We don't necessarily know that you're the person producing it, but that's a, that's a credit to you. Cause you just got your hands in a bunch of stuff. So what, what are some of the movie things that you're doing right now? Television stuff that you're working on? Yeah. The, the low key thing is I, I like that. I like that low key thing. Mm-hmm. I think when you start putting name stamps and time stamps on things, mm-hmm. that's when you become, start to date what you do. Yep. So right now, um, 
I just did a, a holiday film. I scored the entire film. And like when I say I scored it, it was not like hip hop beats going throughout the whole film. Like I orchestrated a film in a traditional holiday sense. And, and that film is called Holiday Hideaway. It's out on BET Plus right now. And then the cool thing about it is um, I brought Vivian Green in. And what Vivian did, she has a great talent to write to different situations and write songs and step out of si- outside of herself as an artist mm-hmm. and, and write songs based on the scenes and stuff like that. So she came through and she wrote a good amount of original songs for the movie. And then we flipped that and turned it into a holiday EP called Spread the Love. So Holiday Hideaway on BT Plus, Spread the Love, the holiday EP. I never thought I would make a quote-unquote holiday album because it's like I said, it's not no like hippie de hop stuff. It's it's like a, it's just a holiday album. And I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> I just did this. And so so we have that. And and also I'm currently working on a foreign film. Well, not really a foreign film. It's it is an international film crew and production team, but musically I'm scoring it and it's based I can't really give out the whole story, but it's based on music that spans from the late 90s to present day. So I have to make this full body of music that feels like I'm making these songs that feel like some large professor type stuff or, or you know, some grimy 90s type records going into records that feel like right now um, or songs or music that feels like right now. And I'm also doing a collaboration with that, with Black Thought on that out, on that movie project. So, um, and then another collaboration I did with um, with Thought, we did a collaboration for this movie um, directed by Lynn Manuel Miranda um, of Hamilton fame, and it was an Oscar nominated movie last year called Tick Tick Boom, and Very it was familiar. a movie about a playwright that wrote the play uh, Rent. Right, and that died right before it came out. Yeah, yeah, he died on, the day it came out. Yeah, it's on That's Netflix. Crazy thing. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, and so me and Thought. It was a small thing, that, but they called me in, and I did a throwback record with Thought on that out on that movie, and it's like a whole segment where Thought shows up and he he does this throwback segment. But then the weird thing is, is uh, you know anything about freestyle records? I'm like freestyle, like Puerto Rican records. <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah, we need some freestyle records. So I went in and I made freestyle records for the movie. Wow, and like 100 percent straight up and down TKA freestyle records. And the only reason, and that's the thing about being in New York, it's like, no, I'm not a freestyle producer. I'm not a freestyle artist, but it was a part of our culture. No, you were exposed to everything. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, like we're, I'm exposed to freestyle. Like if you're out in the roller skating rink and you're breakdancing and popping and you're listening to Planet Rock, it's being mixed with freestyle. It's not even a question. You know that these records. So Lynn gave me that opportunity to do, you know, some freestyle records as well. So, you know, and that was just within the last year and a half, those those three projects. Oh, wow. And there's another uh, another movie called Broom Street where I do the music for it. And it's a m- movie that takes place in the Lower East Side, 1983 crack era, Lower East Side, but not not like paid in full crack era. You know, just just the effects of crooked cops and crooked drug dealers and things like that. And the actor... John Hurd, who plays Kevin's father in Home Alone, that was his last film. So, you know, had the opportunity to work with that crew and make that. I don't know when that's coming out, though. It's done. I saw it. I've, I've seen screenings of it and everything. It goes, it's going through, like, the, the film festival circuit and all that. So just doing those type of projects is exciting to me because it's a challenge. And it's not just saying make an R&B record or make a rap record. You know, figure it out and make this... Christmas music, figure it out, make this weird freestyle record or whatever it is that keeps me going, being in the studio and literally putting my, testing my metal, you know, and I don't, you know, I I hope other artists get to do that as much as they possibly can. Yeah. Well, Quam, thanks, man, for taking the time to be on the Backstory Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Listen, uh, it's always a pleasure and, and I'm proud to know you and proud to just understand your career and see it play through and you're just such an inspiration so I wanted people to know this other side because there is a complete other side of just being an artist there's a whole other world that you can tap into and you've been doing a great job 
Yeah, man, and I feel super cool now I'm on the backstory. You know, all the people, I've, all these legendary people <laughs> I've seen you have on the backstory, and now you put me in the middle of it. It's like everybody went black to work, and here goes the kid wearing yellow. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies cool, and gentlemen. I, I, I really appreciate you having me, man. Oh, no, no, no doubt, man. Kwame, thanks for being on the backstory. All right, peace. Coming up on the next Backstory Podcast. Hip-hop icons, the Wu-Tang Clan. Tongue is a sword, and we chopping off all corny MC's heads. That's why we came with Protect Your Neck. We been watching Kung Fu flicks, too, though. That's that's like that's like my like my, 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 my favorite joint, you know what I'm saying? It's just we rhyme. We like to rhyme, and, and we murder MC's when we do our thing. The Backstory Podcast with Kobe Kobe is an Urban One Incorporated Reach Media Pod is Good production, hosted and executive produced by yours truly, Kobe Kobe, edited by Donkis. Follow us on Twitter at BackstoryPCC. On Instagram, get the backstory. Senior Director of Podcast Operations, Sierra Reed. For sales and corporate partnerships, Josh Romani and Michelle Marino. Digital Marketing, Walter Gaynor, J.R. Smith, and Tim Hall. Thanks again for listening to the Backstory Podcast. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you.